0: I feel the California sun beating down. Yeah, see the pretty roses sprout from the ground. You hear voices whisper through the mission walls, louder than all the kids and the parents' cell phone calls. If you stop to listen, Good afternoon, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves, Cowdy Radio. For Marcus Lopez, Corey Dubin, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Today on American Indian Airwaves, why the United States, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and no one else voted against the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Our guest for the hour recently spoke at Chapman University as part of the Chapman Dialogue Series this past Thursday on April 2nd. Our guest, Robert A. Williams, is from the Lumbee Nation. He is E. Thomas Sullivan Professor of Law and American Indian Studies and Director of the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program at the University of Arizona, James E. Roger College of the Law. He is a leading legal scholar and notable author in the fields of federal Indian law, international law and indigenous peoples' rights, and critical race and post colonial theory. Professor Williams is co-author, along with David Getches and Charles Wilkinson, of the leading casebook on federal Indian law and the author of several path-breaking scholarly books, including The American Indian Western Legal Thought, The Discourses of Conquest, Linking Arms Together, American Indian Treaty Visions of Law and Peace, 1600 to 1800, and Like a Loaded Weapon, The Rehnquist Court Indian Rights, and the Legal History of Racism in America. This is Robert A. Williams Jr. speaking this past Thursday at Chapman University on why the United States, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and no one else voted against the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples.
1: The uh, title of my talk, uh, Why Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the U.S., and Nobody Else Voted Against the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, refers to uh, a document, a text that was passed by the United Nations in September 2007, the result of about 25 years of work of lobbying and knocking on doors in Geneva and and New York at the United Nations uh, to get this declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples passed. Uh, passed 144 to four uh, and those are the only four states and so a lot of folks say well why can't uh, those four states sign in fact we just heard lately last week that Australia looks like they're going to move toward uh, acknowledging the declaration once the vote happens you can't go back and revote but they can say they accept it uh, and New Zealand as well uh, but there is a, a fundamental problem in these four states uh, which explains why they alone of all the states Uh, within the United Nations uh, opposed uh, the declaration uh, and has a lot to do with what's called the implementation gap. How do you implement these various rights and indigenous peoples around the world are guaranteed. Uh, The gap was identified in 2006 by the United Nations Special Rapporteur on indigenous peoples. This is the person who holds the highest uh, brief uh, in the UN system on indigenous peoples. And he noted that during uh... the international decade of the uh... indigenous peoples many countries passed legislation uh... there's uh, constitutions were changed uh... various uh... statutes regulations uh... were passed uh, but as he noted despite those advances there's still an implementation gap between legislation and the day-to-day reality uh, enforcement and observance of the law are beset by myriad obstacles and problems. So what causes this implementation gap? And I actually trace it back uh, to uh, very, very early uh, international law uh, in the history of the Crusades. Uh, In fact, the Crusades uh, were fought around 1094. And what had happened was, if you look at that map uh, in Palestine there, the Levant as it was called, uh, the Muslims uh, Islam Uh, was marching up to the gates of constantinople where the uh, eastern uh, orthodox church was and they sent out a call to rome for help and the pope in rome was able to justify a crusade against the heretics and infidels of the holy lands who held the holy lands on a basis of just war Uh, Augustine, uh, St. Augustine, in the early history of the church, had laid out the foundation for just wars. You could wage a war against those uh, who attacked you, so self-defense was a traditional uh, justification for war. And you could also wage a just war uh, if someone took your property. And so the theory, the original theory of the Crusades were that uh, the Levant, today modern-day Israel, Palestine, had been the property of the Roman Empire. And when Constantine uh, left Rome uh, and transferred the seat of the Roman Empire uh, to Constantinople, Uh, he uh, entrusted all the properties of the Roman Empire to the church. This was called the famous Constantinian donation, believe it or not. And so the Crusades were justified on the theory that those lands had longfully, had had been wrongfully taken from from Rome and and Christendom, and therefore the Pope could commission princes uh, and Catholic armies to go to uh, the Holy Lands and take those lands back. What had happened was the Crusades became very successful, uh, and as you start getting into the 5th and 6th Crusades, it becomes apparent uh, that the uh, Christian armies want to conquer lands that were never within the Constantinian donation. And so the legal issue that's presented to the papacy is whether it is licit to invade a land that infidels possess or which belong to them. In other words, which hadn't been taken uh, in violation of just war theory. And Pope Innocent IV, uh, was a canon law scholar, Sinebaldas Fiescus, was actually, we believe, taught Thomas Aquinas uh, at the University of Paris. Uh, he was one of the first uh, early Roman uh, Catholic uh, uh, legal scholars to try and reconcile Aristotle and church teaching. And it was probably uh, his reconcilio method, uh, which Thomas learned, which led to his great summa. Uh, and uh, Maitland calls him the greatest lawyer to have ever sat upon uh, the papal throne and he addresses this question by saying that the pope has jurisdiction over all men and power over them in law but not in fact so that through this power basically the pope uh... can wage war against those who violate uh... the law of nature natural law uh... what we would today regard as for example international human rights law Uh, So, for example, if infidels prohibit preachers from preaching uh, a sin and so ought to be punished. And If infidels do not obey, they ought to be compelled by the secular arm and war, war may be declared against them. Now there was a very elaborate legal architecture built up around the Crusades and this legal theory that the Pope could commission Christian princes to attack the, the formulation was heathens, infidels, and savages who were in violation of natural law. And in fact, it carries over uh, into the, the 1400s. Africa in the mid 15th century uh, is donated to Portugal because the Portuguese king agreed to go and bring the heathen savages, and infidels who lived in Africa uh, to Christianity and uh, to a settled and quiet government and to civilization. And so, by the papal bull Romanus Pontifex in 1452, the Pope donates all of Africa. To Portugal. This leaves Spain out of the picture. So when Columbus approaches Ferdinand and Isabella in 1488 and says, uh, Well, you know, the Pope gave away Africa to your rival in the the Iberian Peninsula, uh, Portugal. Maybe uh, you might want to give me three ships and see if I can find some lands occupied by heathens, infidels, and savages as well. And it took four years uh, and a a junta of priests and and canon lawyers decided that if Isabella and Ferdinand financed Columbus and he sailed west as far away from Africa as possible, if he discovered any heathen and infidel occupied lands that he could claim them for Spain. So Columbus sails to what is probably the Bahamas. He sees the Arawaks. He describes them as heathens, infidels, and savages, as people who go around without any clothes, have no money. Uh, They run away from the Spaniards when the priests try and tell them about the the Holy Catechism. Uh, But they do seem well disposed to embrace the Christian faith. And so Columbus returns back uh, to uh, Spain. Before he can even get back to Spain, he's he's stopped uh, by the Portuguese and the Azores. Ferdinand finds out that he's made these discoveries and sends an emissary to Rome, and the Pope in Rome at that time, uh, Pope Alexander VI, is actually a member of the Spanish Borgia family, Rodrigo Borgia, the infamous Borgias of the Renaissance, Uh, and Ferdinand had succeeded in putting him on the papal throne, and so Alexander obligingly issued a papal bull granting the entire New World to Spain by virtue of Columbus' discoveries. And you can see it's that same medieval legal justification for taking lands possessed by non-Christian peoples uh, and you notice at the end there with this proviso, none of the islands and mainlands found and to be discovered and to be discovered being the actual possession of any Christian prince or people. So this was the rules. This was the rules of international law as we understood it. Most international law scholars, in fact, point to the development of European imperialism in the 15th and 16th century as the beginning of the international legal system. And it was built upon this idea that non-Christian, savage, infidel peoples had lesser rights than Europeans. In fact, all of the European colonial powers established their claims to dominion and sovereignty in the New World on the basis of this idea that Christians had superior rights over those peoples who violated natural law. So you can see the English built their uh, 13 colonies on the Atlantic coast, uh, Spain, uh, and France all based their claims on this idea that they had discovered lands occupied by these types of inferior societies. Now what's interesting is if you compare what's going on in Europe at the same time as this legal architecture for the diminished rights of Indian people, of indigenous peoples is being developed. Uh, Again, most international law scholars point to the Peace of Westphalia uh, in the mid-seventeenth century as establishing the modern international law system. You can begin to see that the borders that were drawn up by that treaty remain pretty stable, define most of Western Europe. And the fundamental principles, this was the treaty that ended the wars of religion which had torn Europe apart uh, for over a century. Uh, But the fundamental principles are exactly the opposite of what Europe is doing in the new world, very asymmetrical as we might say. Uh, The treaty recognized the sovereignty of nation-states and the fundamental right of political self-determination between European peoples and of course as for indigenous peoples there was no recognition of either of those uh, rights of sovereignty or political self-determination. Legal equality between nation-states is recognized by that treaty. Uh, There's no equality given whatsoever to lands uh, and dominions that are occupied by indigenous tribal peoples. The treaties that are negotiated between European states are regarded as international documents; they have international legal standing, whereas the treaties that are negotiated by European powers in the New World are simply regarded as expedients uh, to facilitate expansion and colonization, uh, and then non-intervention of one state in the internal affairs of another state. Uh, what you have the experience in in the New World, of course, is European colonial powers totally controlling and dominating uh, the political lives of those peoples they bring under their dominion. Uh, And then finally, religion would no longer be a basis for war. And as we've seen, the original justification for going into the New World was the fact that these people weren't Christians and needed to have their religion changed. So this asymmetry continues on and is adopted by the United States as the basic policy of the U.S. toward Indian peoples as well. Uh, In the famous case of Johnson v. McIntosh in 1823, Chief Justice Marshall writes the following. The the issue is whether or not Indians had property rights uh, so that they could sell their lands to whomsoever they pleased. Did they have sovereignty and dominion over their own property? And Marshall, surveying all this history that we've talked about, uh, actually says right in the opinion, on the discovery of this immense continent, the great nations of Europe were eager to appropriate to themselves so much of it as they could respectively acquire. In other words, there's a lot of land there. Its vast extent offered an ample field to the ambition and enterprise of all, and the character and religion of its inhabitants afforded an apology for considering them as a people over whom the superior genius of Europe might claim an ascendancy. So they were savages and infidels. So why could Europe come in and make these claims? Because of their character and religion. And the potentates of the old world found no difficulty in convincing themselves. They made ample compensation to the inhabitants of the new, by bestowing on them civilization and Christianity in exchange for unlimited independence. What a deal, okay? (laughs) Europeans get unlimited independence, uh, we get Christianity. But this was the mentality that you're dealing with. But they're all in pursuit of the same object. It was necessary to avoid conflicting settlements with each other. And they established this principle, which becomes known as the doctrine of discovery. And this principle is that discovery gives title to whose government to the government by whose subjects or by whose authority was made against all other European governments, which title might be consummated by possession. So that becomes the basic rule, and in fact, Marshall's opinion in Johnson v. McIntosh is taken by Henry Wheaton. Some of you may go back to U.S. Supreme Court reporters and see it'll say eight Wheaton. Well, that's the guy. The one of the one of the benefits of the chief justice in those days they didn't pay a lot was that you could sell the publishing rights of the court's opinions. And Wheaton was John Marshall's drinking buddy and idolized him. And so he sold him the right to publish those Supreme Court opinions. And then what he did was collect the opinions of John Marshall in international law and develop a treatise that went through eight editions. It was the most influential international law treatise of the 19th century disseminated throughout Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and even in England. And what happens is that Johnson v. McIntosh becomes cited as the law of nations, that the U.S. was the first country to really deal with this problem of native rights. Uh, and Marshall, going through the history, gets it right. He understands that all the European nations agreed to the doctrine of discovery. Marshall goes on in Johnson to say, "Well, you know, what happens after discovery?" And he says the exclusion of all other Europeans necessarily gave to the nation making that discovery the sole right of acquiring the soil. So it establishes a monopoly. Indians can only sell their land or only have their land taken by conquest or war or abandonment by their European discoverer. It was a right which no Europeans could interfere. It was a right which all asserted. And then comes something very important because this becomes the basic principle of international law for the next 150 years. Those relations which were to exist between the discoverer and the natives were to be regulated by themselves. The rights less acquired being exclusive, no other power could interpose between them. So that's it. Indians drop out of international law. They become subjects of pure domestic concern. You can kill them, you can give them smallpox blankets, you can give them treaties and give them money for their land, you could treat them real nice, you could treat them real bad. Nobody cared, nobody could say anything what you did to your indigenous peoples was purely a matter of your internal sovereignty and international law had nothing to say about it and so you begin to see this idea adopted by other european colonial settler states but most particularly the english common law settler states because of the influence of marshall's opinion and that wheaton treatise and in fact New Zealand, Canada, and Australia all cite Johnson v. McIntosh, Marshall, and Wheaton when they start addressing the issues of their indigenous people's rights a few years later. So you see 1877 in New Zealand, we Parada v. Bishop of Wellington. In the case of primitive barbarians, the Supreme Government must acquit itself as best it may of its obligation to respect native proprietary rights and of necessity must be the sole arbiter of its own justice. There's that idea. No rights beyond what we give you. No international status, no legal status other than what we decide. And then the Supreme Court, the highest court in Australia, in Mabo v. Queensland, going back through 100 years of Australian legal history, summarizes Australian law. The great voyages of European discovery opened to European nations the prospect of occupying new and valuable territories that were already inhabited. To these territories, the European colonial nations applied the doctrine relating to acquisition of territory that was terra nullius, nobody there. In Australia, they thought the aboriginal peoples were so uncivilized and so savage that they had no system whatsoever of property. They just roamed over the land like kangaroos. And so they legally designated Australia as terra nullius, nobody there. Various justifications for the acquisition of sovereignty were advanced. The benefits of Christianity and European civilization had been seen as sufficient justification, and they cited me. I've never been cited in a US Supreme Court. When I get cited in the circuit, it's usually CF. You know, I'm the CF guy. so, So it was nice to get cited and somebody actually pay attention to what you write. But the point is that you can begin to see this common pattern in these English common law settler states, which all inherit the doctrine of discovery. The Spaniards don't have the the same English common law approach. They're a civil law system. The king owns everything. The king owns everything from the center of the earth to the sky, and he gives you titulo. He gives you a title. He gives you a grant. And what the Spaniards actually did was usually give communal land grants to the Pueblos, for example. Uh, Here in the Rancheras, in some instances, you would have some gubernatorial land grants. And so there is a titling system in many of the Spanish and Portuguese-derived colonial societies. You never had that in the English common law. Basically, English common law comes in, wipes out all native rights, and starts over by defining these diminished rights. And this was the situation up until post-World War II. And then you had the Holocaust, and then you had Eleanor Roosevelt, and then you had a recognition that not recognizing the rights of minority peoples causes difficulties, lots of instability, maybe we should do something about it. And I tell my students this, you know, I say, what was the purpose of the UN? Ah, to secure world peace, uh, to coordinate global action. No, it was to manage decolonization. That was the primary purpose of the UN. I know because Louis Sohn was my teacher at Harvard Law School and he was there. And the biggest concern was that England, that France, that all these countries had just gotten their brains beat out in World War II. They were going to need the Marshall Plan to reconstruct their entire economies, and they had all these colonies sitting overseas. They wanted to get out of the colonization business really bad, but they wanted to do it in a way that was ordered and structured and would protect their nationals who had invested money in there so that the World Bank could finance loans to help capitalize purchases by these new governments. And so the UN sets up a decolonization process to give an orderly transition to these new, these uh, newly liberated states, and countries are asked uh, to list which uh, various of their colonial possessions would be put into the United Nations decolonization process. So, for example, Hawaii is put into that process. Now, after a couple of weeks, some indigenous peoples are saying, "Well, what about us? What about?" Indian tribes in the U.S.? What about some of the indigenous groups in, in Russia? Uh, what about in Latin America? And if you're going to decolonize, what about decolonizing us? And this caused a great up And everybody goes into a room and says, what are we going to do? We can't decolonize everybody. Mm-hmm. And the Belgians, who wanted to get out of this business worse than anybody, came up with a brilliant idea. And of course, Belgium is where the Hague is, and it's where these great international law scholars are, so you know they came up with a really great theoretical justification for not including indigenous peoples in the Americas and Australia and Canada in the decolonization mandate. And they did. It's called the blue water thesis. Belgium said, if your country is separated by an ocean from your colonizer, then you're included in decolonization. And if you're not too bad, you lose. That was it. (laughs) The blue water thesis. You laugh, but that's as sophisticated as it gets. This as pure political expediency. So, in the United Nations, indigenous peoples are sort of left out of the equation. They're not considered as peoples. They're not considered as entitled to the right to self-determination. And everything is going along swimmingly for about 20 years. And then in the late 60s, early 70s, you begin to get the birth of large multinational corporations exploring for energy resources. And this map shows you the uh, dotted areas... The, so the the pink dots are areas uh, where indigenous peoples are, and the hatched areas are areas where you have energy exploration. And so what's happening, particularly in many of these areas where indigenous peoples have not been colonized in Latin America, in Canada, in North America, throughout Africa, for example, where there's still a large number of indigenous tribal peoples, uh, they're beginning to find that the lands they had traditionally lived on that nobody wanted are now becoming subject to international energy exploration. You're getting relocation. You're getting dam projects, major dam projects. Indigenous peoples like to live near rivers. And so when you get the World Bank coming in to finance a large dam, it tends to affect indigenous peoples. And particularly in countries um, where you had these indigenous populations who had never had their land rights secured, uh, they were having real problems. And so they begin going to the UN. And they begin to say, well, what about us? You know, how come we're not protected from this type of development? How come our human rights aren't protected? and what they're told at the UN at first is well you know you're not peoples so that article one thing there in the UN declaration of human rights in the international covenant in the charter which says that all peoples have the right to self you're not peoples okay um... in fact so you don't have uh... this right to determine your political status and freely pursue your own economic social and cultural development that just applies to nation states you guys gotta go through article twenty seven you're a minority So so when we put this whole deal together, we were going to take care of you like all the other ethnic and linguistic minorities. So if your human rights are violated, then you've got to frame it within the context of Article 27. In those states in which ethnic, religious, and linguistic minorities exist, persons belonging to those minorities shall not be denied the right in community with other members of their group to enjoy their own culture, to profess and practice their own religion, or to use their own language. And you notice there's nothing in there about land. Nothing in there about taking away the land that you've been on for thousands of years. And so indigenous peoples start knocking on the door. They go to the International Labor Organization. They go to the OAS. They start showing up at UN standard-setting bodies, for example, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. They start pressing on ECOSOC to establish a working group on indigenous peoples. And what they're saying in all these forums is the same thing. Your rules aren't working for us. We are getting slaughtered. We are getting dispossessed. We are losing our culture. We are being subjected to genocide. And your wonderful individualistic human rights charters, which protect free speech and freedom of religion and all that other stuff, is great for you, but it's not working for us. And they talk long enough, and guess what? These folks start getting it. So, for example, the UN Human Rights Committee starts to understand that, yes, indigenous peoples are minorities, but they're a minority that's very special and different and sui generis from everybody else. And so when they come to us making Article 27 claims, there's something we have to recognize with regard to the exercise of the cultural rights protected under Article 27. The committee observes that culture manifests itself in many forms, including a particular way of life associated with the use of land resources, especially in the case of indigenous peoples. The light goes on. We get it. That right may include such traditional activities as fishing or hunting and the right to live in reserves protected by law, to be protected by the state, to fish and hunt, to practice all those traditional activities which Europeans condemned you as being primitive. Fishing and hunting, you mean we have to protect them in doing those things? We want to move them into the cities and get them working in factories. We want to get those lands for development. No, because if you do that, you destroy the culture. And we think that's a violation of human rights. And then other UN bodies, the UN Body Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. So what you're beginning to see is a transformation of this idea of discrimination against indigenous people taking a unique and sui generis form. In many regions of the world, indigenous peoples have been and are still being discriminated against and deprived of their human rights and fundamental freedoms. They have lost their land and resources to colonists. So here you begin to see the term human rights combined with this idea of loss of land, and you can begin to see that a jurisprudence is beginning to develop, a set of standards, an idea of moving toward different types of policies. Consequently, the preservation of their culture and their historical identity has been and still is jeopardized. And so the U.N. CERD committee calls on all its member states to recognize and protect the rights of indigenous peoples to own, develop, control, and use their communal lands, territories, and resources. And so that's what the Special Rapporteur was referring to in the Decade of the World's Indigenous Peoples. As indigenous peoples are starting to raise consciousness around this idea of the unique relationship between a land-based culture and cultural survival and human rights, states begin to pass laws. States begin to amend their constitution. States begin to create protected reserves in which traditional lands are demarcated and delineated and protected from encroachment. And so then you get all this leading up to the United, declaration, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Finally, in 2007, after working for 20 years, after knocking on the door, Indigenous Peoples finally got a declaration which announced They're fundamental human rights, and it's much different from any other international human rights declaration you'll ever read. It's very much focused on cultural survival, articulated around the principle of traditional lands. So Article 26, indigenous peoples have the right to the lands, territories, and resources which they have traditionally owned, occupied, or otherwise used or acquired. You notice no titulo there, no title, no land registration. If you've been on there for time immemorial, it's yours. The state has to recognize it. They have the right to own, use, and develop, and control the lands, territories, and resources they possess by reason of traditional ownership. So notice how in international law now, indigenous peoples prove their title, prove their right. They prove it by showing they've been there forever, which is usually not that hard.
0: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves County Radio, Robert A. Williams on why the United States... Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and no one else voted against the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves Cowdy Radio. And now we go back to our concluding segment here on American Indian Airwaves with Robert A. Williams Jr. speaking on why the United States, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and no one else voted against the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. States
1: shall give legal recognition and protection to those lands, territories, and resources. Such recognition is Shall be conducted with due respect to the customs, traditions and land tenure systems of the indigenous peoples concerned, so you begin to see these mandates being imposed upon states. It's a declaration, it's aspirational, but it puts a lot of pressure on states not to just come in there and relocate indigenous peoples anytime there's an energy project that you want to develop. Article 28 is one that caused a lot of consternation among states, because what happens if the state has granted that land to private parties? What then? Well? Then indigenous peoples have the right to redress by means that include restitution or, if this is not possible, just fair and equitable composition, comp- compensation for the lands, territories, and resources which they have traditionally owned or otherwise occupied. And it has to be done through their free, prior, and informed consent. You can understand now why a country which adopts the doctrine of discovery can't abide by that. You can understand why these English common law settler states, which all say that the sovereign has the exclusive right to define relations with indigenous peoples, which all say that international law has nothing to say about the way that we treat indigenous people's property rights or cultural survival rights. It's totally irreconcilable. There is no way that a government like the US or Canada uh, or Australia and New Zealand, so long as it continues to adhere to this principle that as superior sovereign under the doctrine they can control and define all indigenous rights as they see fit, can ever sign on to the declaration. So Australia said it could not allow tribes' customary law to be given precedence over national law. There should only be one law for all Australians. We should not enshrine in law practices that are not acceptable in the modern world. And I agree with that totally. I think the doctrine of discovery is totally unacceptable in the modern world. But they don't get it. This is, this is my fate. Canada's position has remained consistent in principle. We have stated publicly we have significant concerns with respect to the wording of the current text, including the provisions on lands, territories, and resources. This, I love this. Free, prior, and conformed consent when used as a veto. Isn't that what that means? Doesn't, it, doesn't informed consent mean the right to say no? So you can have free, prior, and informed consent, but you cannot say no. You have to say yes. Self-government without recognition of the importance of negotiations. There's an idea. Self-government is a negotiated principle. Have you ever thought of that? That you can compromise on your right to self-government. Military issues and the need to achieve an appropriate balance between the rights and obligations of indigenous peoples, member states, and third parties. So appropriate balance. I represent six First Nations in Canada uh, on a list of 500 communities throughout Canada. Uh, they are they they're six placed within 485 through 499. There's an appropriate balance. Okay. So you can begin to see the mentality that you're dealing with—that these states just really don't want to give up this authority they have to control Indigenous people's lives, lands, recognition, identity. Now, the new special rapporteur, my colleague Geminiah, Uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, in his 2008 report, took this assertion right on. That that the declaration is some sort of radical statement that's creating new rights uh, and has no grounding in international law. And as he said, it represents an authoritative common understanding at the global level of the minimum content of the rights of indigenous peoples upon a foundation of various sources of international human rights law. So those types of developments that I was talking to you about that have gone on for the past 10 years have created a body of law, norms, and standards, which the declaration, as Professor Anaya says simply puts them all together in one place, saying, here's where we're at. Here's where we're at in terms of contemporary international human rights treatment and what we think states ought to do in protecting the human rights of indigenous peoples. And you can go through any international human rights system in the world and see this being done, whether it's in Africa or in the case of a case that I'm bringing right now before the inter-American human rights system. The OAS, the Organization of American States, has its own human rights system. Uh, It has its own declaration. And within this human rights system, over the past 10 years, there's been a tremendous amount of development backing up exactly what Professor Anaya says. Articulating these standards, these general human rights norms as applied to indigenous peoples. The big thing about the OAS and the American Declaration is that unlike the Universal Declaration in the U.N. system, it actually has a very detailed article on the right to property. Article 23. Every person has a right to own such private properties meets the essential needs of decent living and helps to maintain the dignity of the individual and of the home. And it used to be, well, private property, that just means white people, because we know Indians don't have a conception of property. But the development of the jurisprudence and the standards over the last decades have made it clear that this idea of private property, churches are, you know, they, they have private property, corporations hold private property. The mere fact that title is held communally doesn't diminish the, the sanctity and the dignity attached to holding that property to perpetuate your culture. And so the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and the Inter-American Court have spent the last 10 years fleshing out the meanings of that article in the context of indigenous peoples. The first case was uh, Awastini versus Nicaragua, the mosquito case uh, brought uh, by my colleague Professor Naya, uh, with the help of the Indigenous People's Law and Policy Program. Uh, This is what happens when you don't recognize indigenous people's property rights. Nicaragua basically gave a timber concession that cut out the heart of the traditional territory of the Aweskini people. No consultation, no benefit sharing, uh, no discussion of environmental impacts. They just gave this land to a, North, uh, to a South Korean company to cut down all the trees and clear cut in the manner which I showed you. They went to court. at The domestic level were summarily thrown out. No titulo, no titulo. Where's your title? How can you say you have rights to that title when no one has ever given it to you? We've been there forever for thousands of years. Doesn't matter. We're going to cut down all the trees. We won't be able to live. Where do we go? Go to uh, Managua. Go to the city. Go to Bluefields. The Inter American Commission, in a case confirmed by the Inter American Court, Nicaragua signed on to the mandatory jurisdiction of the court, found that Nicaragua had violated the right to property under the American Convention. And uh, the same exact language, Article 23, under the Declaration, is restated in the American Convention, which is the document that the Inter American Court finds. Uh, For the first time ever, an international human rights body found that a state had violated the human rights of indigenous peoples by granting concessions to third parties uh, without consulting those peoples, without recognizing their property rights. And you can begin to see the commission essentially aping the same type of discourse that the uh, United Nations expert bodies are articulating. For indigenous communities, relations to the land are not merely a matter of possession and production, but a material and spiritual element which they must fully enjoy, even to preserve their cultural legacy and transmit it to future generations. In a follow-up case the next year, so you can begin to see that the commission and the OAS system are getting a lot of these cases, and indigenous peoples, just as they're going to Geneva, working on the working group draft declaration, are also going to the OAS, pushing these standards, pushing these ideas, creating law reform. In the Dan case, uh, Mary and Carrie Dan, my clients now, um, Western Shoshone women who were in the United States and Nevada uh, and essentially had never had their land titled but had uh, used the land in traditional fashion, herded their cattle there, grazed their horses, and the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, says you have no rights to be here and starts impounding their horses. And so they lose at the U.S. Supreme Court, the court citing the Doctrine of Discovery, You guys don't have any rights under U.S. law, too bad. They go to the Inter-American Commission, and the commission says, where property and user rights of indigenous peoples arise from rights existing prior to the creation of the states, then indigenous peoples have the right to recognition by that state. And most importantly, if it's lost at the bottom there, it also implies the right to fair compensation, in the event that such property and user rights are irrevocably lost. The commission reaffirmed this principle and expands it in a case involving the Maya, the Maya, are, again, they're our clients. This is another one of cases from our uh, program. The Maya have the most long-documented long residency on their traditional lands of any group in the Western Hemisphere. And the Belizean government refused to recognize that they were there. They said, no, you have no rights on that land, and we can grant it all to a timber company to cut down all the trees. Uh, And the commission rules that the right to use and enjoy property may be impeded when the state itself or third parties acting with the acquiescence or tolerance of the state affect the existence, value, or use of the property. Um, And here's what's happening now. This is where the jurisprudence is at, and this is why these states which adhere to the doctrine of discovery have so much difficulty with the principles articulated in the declaration. It's clear now that international law recognizes the possibility of two... Property law systems on the same piece of property. The state can title property to a third party, to a white person, or to any regular citizen. But if indigenous peoples have been on that property exercising their traditional customs and their traditional laws and ways, then the indigenous property right exists at the same time. So you have what's called a bicultural property interest. And neither can extinguish the other. There has to be an accommodation. And the state has to recognize it, cannot extinguish it. And so that indigenous communal property arises from and is grounded in indigenous custom and tradition. So here, go back to the beginning when Europe and international law gave absolutely no credence whatsoever to indigenous people's property rights systems, to their traditions and customs. And now the international legal system is telling these countries, not only do you have to recognize them, but you have to incorporate them into your own legal system. And they don't have to account to you. They don't have to legitimate their their law to you. It exists. It it, uh, is a manifestation of their right to cultural survival. And that's just the way it is. You need to accommodate. And so what's now happening is sort of this feedback loop. The developments in jurisprudence by the inter-American system are now being picked up by the UN-CERD committee. So the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination then picks up the Dan case and issues an early action. And the U.S. is a signatory to UN-CERD treaty. And tells them that you guys are violating the decision by the Inter-American Commission. And so we are about to hold you in violation of your UN-CERD treaty. And so you begin to see how the jurisprudence now has this sort of systemic application. And very much like courts uh, in a federal system, these decision makers are citing each other for support, precedent, and authority. The commission's and the court's latest decisions go even farther because now what's happened is particularly these Latin American states which pay a lot of attention to the Inter-American Commission's jurisprudence say, well, how do we implement? How do we implement this new law? And so in case coming out of Paraguay, the court uh, spells out very clearly that if they're in possession, you have to recognize it. If they haven't left, you have to give them legal title. And if you transfer that legal title, number four, if you've unwillingly lost possession of the lands to third parties, you're entitled to restitution or other lands of equal extension and quantity. Consequently, possession is not a requisite conditioning the existence of indigenous land restitution rights. And then the the latest case, just handed down, Saramaka, the commission actually spells out what the state wants to do. Remember we talked about these sort of bicultural property rights systems where the indigenous property rights exist alongside of the state's Uh, titling system, here's what the state has to do. If it wants to authorize development on those lands, it has to ensure the effective participation of the indigenous peoples in conformity with their customs and traditions. So if they meet in a big circle in the the forest uh, and 400 people come there and vote individually on it, then the state officials have to go down there in the middle of the forest and tell them about it and get their vote. And if they don't get it, too bad. Try a different way. The state has to guarantee that the indigenous peoples receive a reasonable benefit from any such plan within their territory. There has to be benefit sharing, you know, employment, uh, capital, uh, development of schools, uh, roads, infrastructure. And the state has to assure that no concession is issued until the state goes and gets an independent prior environmental and social impact assessment. So really, within the last 10 years, there has literally been a revolution in the way that Latin American countries really deal with indigenous people's property rights as they work through implementation, uh, but certainly not in the common law countries. And this lets me conclude a little bit. I'll talk a few minutes and then take some questions on a case uh, which we've brought uh, before the commission. So our program, as you see, have, bought, have brought a lot of these cases. Jim and I has been the lead attorney on most. Our students participate, both LLM and JD students. Uh, I've taught property law. That's how I got hooked into these things. Uh, when Jim became uh, special rapporteur, a lot of these files came on to me. So we're now dealing with these. And one of our big cases, we sort of lined up a group of cases in which we're pushing various principles, so we actually have a litigation strategy. Uh, And this is the case that we've put a lot of resources into. Uh, In British Columbia, when Canada uh, basically finally gets out to British Columbia in the late 19th century, they realize from the American experience, in fact, Leyland Stanford, was the guy who was one of the big investors in British Columbia colonization, having made all this money on the railroads uh, in California, goes up to British Columbia and tells the government that if you sign treaties with Indians, they hang around. It consolidates them. Better, he actually cited the California experience. So Stanford and his group were one of the big parties which prevented the California uh, Indian tribes from having their treaties ratified by the Senate. They were locked away in the Senate for 50 years and never ratified. And it was because of this experience that if you sign treaties, it gives them legal recognition. So British Columbia never recognized any aboriginal title through treaties or any other means throughout the entire province. In fact, they argued that under the doctrine of discovery, your title had been extinguished. By contrary, acts by the government. So if the government gives a timber license, that extinguishes it. If it grants it in fee simple, that extinguishes it. And the Human Rights Committee had been kind of, the UN had been on Canada for a while and had been following them, and we knew they were sort of ripe for criticism if we could find the right forum. And so we uh, took on a case uh, brought by the Hocaminum, and you can get a sense of where they're at. Uh, They are very close... Uh, to uh, Vancouver, and you can stand on our client's land and you can see Mount Whistler where the 2010 Olympics are going to be. Uh, and there is a tremendous real estate boom going on there as a result of the Olympics. The Olympics um, have become basically like a big business convention, uh, and you use sports instead of strippers, for example. What happens is that all these guys are going to come in from Asia, from China, uh, from, from, from uh, Korea, and say, gee, this is beautiful. We ought to set up a, a, a corporate headquarters here. We ought to buy a condo over on Vancouver Island. So what ends up happening is you just accelerate tremendous building boom goes on. And so my clients who had been in this area here for thousands of years had been left alone for a long time. So the area in yellow was their traditional lands. And what happens is in 1884, while my clients are out in the Gulf Islands there, Salt Spring Island, uh, fishing, uh, the British sell everything in green, they sell to the e Railroad Corporation, one of whose principal stockholders is Leyland Stanford and a group of other very wealthy industrialists. So they grant every square inch of my client's land to this railroad company. Uh, then they bring in the British men of war and, and bomb their villages on the mainland and then go and round them out on the Gulf Islands and tell them uh, that you've lost everything uh, and essentially put them in a compound and then assign them these little postage stamps. In fact... The Gulf Islands were then taken in a subsequent grant, and here's what they were left with. See it? That's what, they, uh, that's what the commission did when I showed them this map, too. It really works well, doesn't it? And so we brought this petition uh, essentially built upon this architecture of these cases. By unilaterally granting rights and interests in the traditional lands and resources of the whole to private third parties without ever consulting them, seeking their consent, or offering restitution or payment. You see I'm getting everything in one of those cases into the sentence, right? It's a long sentence, but it really does combine all of the jurisprudence. Canada is acting in violation of the right to property, the right to restitution for its taking, the right to cultural integrity, the right to consultation and other human rights belonging to the Hulkamina. And this is what's happening to my client's land. This was a Google picture taken about six months ago, and you can see the bare areas are areas that have been subdivided. So these are areas where you have elk corridors, uh, there's a river there, salmon. Uh, my, one of my elders testified the commission went onto to one of these properties and found 45 different medicines, traditional healing, uh, spiritual bathing, uh, and it used to be all green. But what's happened in the last 10 years, you can see these bare areas They just come in and clear-cut it because it's privately owned. And if you're a private owner in Canada, you can cut down all the trees and do whatever you want with it. And the areas in red are proposed subdivisions. So you can see how the traditional, this is, you know, as I say, this looks like, you know, Brazil and sting and the lungs of the rainforest, right? I mean, this is deforestation going on in what we think is a highly civilized civil society, Canada. It gives you an idea. These are some of the statistics we showed. The Olympics are awarded to Vancouver in 2002. And so we traced real estate development activity from 2002 on. You can see uh, zoning amendment applications. These are big planned communities, 400, 500, 700 units. 2002, we're swimming along, 16, 15. You can now get a sense they've almost tripled. tripled. Uh, the number of subdivision referrals received. Okay. So these are just in terms of, of uh, plans. So this is the, the earlier stage. So these are things we're thinking of doing. You can see they've almost doubled in that period. This is what's really scary, though, is that these subdivisions are becoming bigger. So the average number of units swam along in 2002 about, you know, 52, 92. 2006, the average number was 270. They've tripled. So, they're they're, again, because of the Olympics, they're building bigger and bigger subdivisions, more and more houses, more and more of our traditional territory taken away. So, in addition to our petition, we filed a request for precautionary measures, which we had a hearing on two Mondays ago uh, before the commission, uh, which we're trying to shut down all development activity until Canada can develop a consultation process which implements those principles that I showed you in that Saramaka decision independent environmental and human rights review, benefit sharing, um, and Canada wasn't very happy about doing that for us. I have no idea why. Uh, But that's where we stand. So that's kind of, now you know why they don't want to sign. Uh, And I'm happy to take any questions.
2: I was at the Civil Rights Commission in the late 1980s when we dealt with Indian Civil Rights Act, Indian Child Welfare Act cases. Article 23 talks about the right of private property for individuals. And that, of course, runs afoul of the kind of, or or into into tension with, the communal property rights. And so a a couple of examples. Um, Somebody says, you know what, that's all well and good, but I'm going to choose my U.S. citizenship over my tribal citizenship. I want to get off the reservation. I want to have my kids on U.S. soil. And reject that, The Indian Child Welfare Act lets the tribe make, oh, make um, and, and so there's another aspect of international human rights law that requires recognition of those individual self-determination claims that may be distinct from the, the communal tribal claim. Yeah. And, and how do you deal with that? And then the, the second aspect of this, uh, I, I really appreciated your comment about um, the US recognizing tribal rights, uh, property rights, better than, than almost right. anybody else. Um, but there's an aspect of uh, one of the uh, UN provisions you put up that talks about uh, informed consent as a way of looking back. Right. It clearly was not informed consent when we sold off Manhattan for 24 bucks, yeah. right? Although that may be high compared to what's going on in Manhattan today, I don't know. Yeah. Right? Um, uh, it, it is the reason the U.S. won't sign that because of concern about that language, letting it unravel some of the infrastructure that's one already there. One of
1: the there. big uh, again, the U.S. has stated concerns. One of them has to do with recognition. Uh, there's a lot of language in the declaration which imposes on states the obligation to recognize indigenous peoples, and the U.S. has always maintained that it recognizes tribes through treaty, statute, or administrative. Um, procedure called the federal acknowledgment process, and they don't want to give that up. So they don't want anybody with an extra battering ram. Uh, they're also somewhat concerned about uh, whether or not they keep on saying the word balkanization. That if you recognize this right to self-determination, it's going to lead to balkanization and and weaken their plenary authority. So. Um, but thats they've never gotten much beyond that. And it was the Bush administration. We've gotten signals from the Obama administration that they are going to sign on, particularly now with Australia um, and New Zealand coming on. Um, but so, I've, we've, other than the recognition issue, there isn't all that much. Honestly, if you go through the declaration, um, a lot of what's in there is already recognized in U.S. law. Now it's a problem of implementation. And again, informed consent. We had a great informed consent case uh, in Arizona, Uh, where a university researcher went to the bottom of the Grand Canyon with the Havasupai tribe and told them, well, you have high diabetes, let us take some of your blood, uh, and we'll figure out why. And they signed a consent form, which said that that blood could be used for the Human Genome Project. And you talk to people at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, Havasupai, they didn't know what the human genome project is. So again what is informed consent? With your example when you know the, the energy company comes in there with this great looking deal with benefit sharing and everybody says yeah we're poor let's do it and then some environmental groups say well they're not telling you this they're not telling you that. So what, what counts as informed? And that is an issue for the U.S. government. They have a government to government relationship and they want to assume that when an elected tribal government says yeah you can do a timber license here yeah you can mine for uranium that that deal is going to stick that some traditional elder who says, well, I was out in the boonies, and nobody told me, and I don't vote in tribal elections anyway, because they're all Lutherans, as one of them once told me. You know, many of your tribal governments are the more assimilated elements of the tribe, and the traditional people have nothing to do with it until they see the bulldozers out there, so that's one of the problems. And then the issue, what was the other one you had? Yeah, and again, uh, I don't have an answer to that. I will tell you that one of the most intense issues for 10 years in Geneva, as we were sort of batting heads on 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 the Draft declaration was the states were saying, okay, you want to impose rights on us. What about you guys? If we're going to give you self determination, you're going to be exercising governmental power over your own citizens and other citizens. So why don't we have something in the declaration that imposes human rights standards on you? And that just freaked everybody out. It just, we could never get there, didn't want to do it, didn't trust them. But I will tell you that the UN Special Rapporteur is now working with the Human Rights Council to hold a series of workshops, which is what the UN likes to do, on exactly that problem. Uh they're going to discuss three problems but the real problem they want to discuss is now that we've got a declaration what are the obligations of indigenous communities with respect to protecting the human rights of their own citizens particularly women and 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 children those are oftentimes really really difficult problems and I don't think it helps anybody by saying we're not ready to talk about it now I think the UN system wants to talk about it they're going to put indigenous people's feet to the fire on that and I think you're going to see indigenous people's coming toward a position that says well of course if we're exercising self-determination And the same human rights standards that apply, basic fundamental human rights ought to apply to us as well.
0: If we could get one more question. I had a question for you, Rob. It might be slightly redundant, but uh, about 60% of the indigenous population lives in urban environments. And I was curious, um, how should that population implement DRIP? And for the 95% of the settler society, what is their responsibility to DRIP?
1: Oh well, in the U.S., I mean, I don't even have law students who know anything about international law, so you know, not much. U.S. society doesn't know much about international law. Uh, As for urban India, you know, the urban indigenous situation, I can give you there's some some parallels which kind of show us how fraught this is with danger. Uh, In New Zealand, the Maori were able to renegotiate uh, to essentially get a large percentage of the national fishery, 40% of the fishery, and the Maori started dividing it up amongst the iwi, the tribe out there in the boonies, and the urban maori who remember going fishing with their auntie or their uncle or their father say hey can we utilize that? And say, well, you're urban Maori. You're disconnected. The only way you can exercise that right is to come back into the community and enroll. The Sami are another example. The Sami are, are, are Scandinavian indigenous peoples, and they do reindeer herding. And to be a Sami is to be a reindeer herder. If you, if you don't reindeer herd, you're not a Sami. Well, the Sami have passed regulations would say, if you don't live out there on the tundra, you know, if you're in Oslo, too bad. You know, living it up and living the good life. To be a, get a reindeer license, you've got to be in that community, and so that becomes a real problem, and i 'm not sure I think you know one example that I would, would point to is the is the example of East Coast tribes which have been recognized, which get a land base and then which have fabulously successful casinos and they see their are their enrollment numbers increase from 100 to 1,000. More people move back. And I think particularly for indigenous peoples who are one or two generations removed, who have the auntie, who have the grandmother, who remember the stories, who visit the community, the only reason you're not there is your parents couldn't find work. And now that there are jobs there and you have this culture that has this ability to sustain itself, I think it's that movement back to the reservation that we're seeing in a lot of the more successful tribes, uh, which kind of holds the answer to your
2: question. The moment of silence is over.
0: And that was noted and distinguished Indigenous legal professor Robert A. Williams, Jr., We spoke this past Thursday at Chapman University as part of the Chapman Dialogue series on why the United States, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and no one else voted against the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. I'd like to remind our listeners that American Indian Airwaves is produced out of the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Long Beach, California, and Coyote Radio in Goleta, California. American Indian Airwaves Coyote Radio is also based out of KPFK in Los Angeles, California, and would like to thank our listeners throughout the Southern California region, as well as WCRS in Columbus, Ohio. For Marcus Lopez, Corey Dubin, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. For
2: the innocent you can't justify Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains In a rhythm of rhythm
0: Hey.